Yeah. Uh, well, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, there was a young son of a mafia boss. <laughs> you know, this is how I'm opening up this servant. <laughs> Young son of this mafia boss, he was sitting in his room. He was writing out his Christmas list. And he's writing it out to, to baby Jesus. And he starts out, dear baby Jesus, I have been good this whole year. So I won't, well, he stops. He's like, he crumbles up the paper, throws it, away, throws it in the trash can and starts over. Dear baby Jesus, I've been a pretty good boy. For most of this, and then he, like, he wads it up, throws it away. Um, he starts over. Dear baby Jesus, I've been decent. This Finally, he throws it away. He goes outside to the nativity scene outside. He gets Mary from it, brings Mary, Mother Mary, into his room, puts her in the closet, then writes the letter. Dear baby Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... Come on now. Hope or lack of hope can cause you to do some crazy things, right? Come on, right? Uh, Christmas, here's the thing about Christmas. It has a tendency to magnify things either way. And here's what I'm saying. If, if life is pretty good, Christmas magnifies that and makes you think, man, this is awesome. It's the most wonderful time of the year. But if you're going through some stuff, if things are not that good, it magnifies that also and has a tendency to make it seem worse than what it really is. It's a magnifier. Uh, uh, we're, we're in week three of this series, Ho, Ho, Hope. And, and the reason we're, we're talking about hope is because, listen, there's a lot of things that may be a rare commodity in our world but none more rare than hope right now. I mean, every time you turn on the news, there's a new variant. There's something else going on. It's Omicron. It's, it, it's uh, I, I can't wait for the next one to come out uh, and just see what it's named. Uh, but, it, but it's always, they're keeping us, this is going on. And, and with everything else, it's hard to find hope. I just saw where one of the local factories uh, just laid off 300-something workers. A week before Christmas. It's hard to have hope in this day and age. And here's what I think it's fair to say. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. Whether you, you say, I don't even believe in, in this thing. I'm just here to get somebody off my back. Uh, listen, wherever you're at in your journey, I'll, I know this is true. We all need hope. We all need hope. And, and so, so you may say, uh, and they say my, my clicker's working, but I have no idea where it's at. So you'll have to help me out there. Go ahead and bring up that what's in the box. What's in the box? You may say, well, everybody, did, did everybody get one of these when you came in? If you did not get one, raise your hand because I want to make sure you got. We got some people right here. Uh, if we can get our ushers to help them out. Who hasn't opened their box yet? You haven't? Wow. Who has? You're the worst. I'm praying for y'all today. What's in the box? What's in the box? Here's what this lesson is sitting around. A Texas businessman, a guy by the name Bob Buford, 
wrote a book called Halftime. He wrote about this meeting that changed his life forever. Bob Buford was a Christian businessman. He, he had been successful. Um, he had reached all his goals that he had set out in life by, by, by the time he was in his early 40s. Uh, he was the president and CEO of a tremendously successful uh, cable TV company. He had a happy marriage. He had a beautiful home, had lots of toys that to play with. He was financially secure. He was independently wealthy. And Bob said that although people around him talked about him being wildly successful, he said this in that book, I was not satisfied. So he said that he didn't feel a sense of fulfillment, and he, he said, I could not understand why. I've got everything I could possibly want. Why don't I have a sense of fulfillment? And, and so Bob said that the turning point in his life, when he decided to hire a strategic planning consultant by the name of Mike Cammy. He invited Mike to come and spend a few days with he and his wife, Linda. And get this, Mike, who was, he had hired to come in and do the strategic planning for his life, he wasn't even a believer. He wasn't even a Christian. But Bob still hired him to come and help him drop a street strategic plan for his life. Not his business, but for his life. Bob had shown that he was good at drawing up plans for business. But he wanted something for his life. Bob spent a few days with Cam. He said, laying out his dreams, his desires, a list of his perceived strengths and weaknesses, his profession of faith, projects started, half started, things to do, things to abandon, and goals he had for his business. He then looked at Cammy and said, so what about it? What should I do? How can I be most useful? He said, I asked, how can I make the rest of my life count? Where should I invest my talents? Where should I invest my time and treasure? What are the values that give purpose to my life? What is the overarching vision that shapes me? Who am I? Where am I? Where am I going? And how do I get there? Bob writes that the turning point came when Mike came in, took out a sheet of paper, sketched a box on it, and asked him one simple question. What's in the box? Mike looked at Bob and said, Bob, this box represents your life. Imagine a box in which you placed your greatest treasure. What is the most important thing in your life? What will be the defining purpose of your life? What will drive your life? That's what goes in the box. Bob writes, this non-believer looks at me, a believing businessman, and said, I've talked with you long enough to know it's either money or Jesus. And if you can tell me which one it is, I can tell you the strategic planning implications of that choice. If you can tell me, you're going to constantly, if you cannot tell me, he says, you're going to constantly oscillate between those two values and you will always be confused. If it's Jesus, Bob said, or the, Mike said, if it's Jesus, We'll put, G, we'll put a cross in the box. If it's money, we'll draw a dollar sign in the box. But what is the driving force of your life? What goes in the box? Bob later said, he said, no one had ever asked me such a significant question so directly. He said that he sat there for a few minutes stunned by the implications of what his decision might be. He says, I thought, what if God asked me to sell my business? 
What if God asked me to give away all my money? After a few minutes that Bob said felt like hours, he looked back at Kami and took a pen pen and sketched a cross in the middle of the box and said, if it has to be one or the other, I choose Jesus to go in the box. In other words, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, that will be the driving force for the rest of my life. That will be what is the most important thing in my life. Jesus will be my mission and my purpose in life. Jesus is what's in the box. Should have gotten one of these boxes when you came in. Go ahead and get it out there for a minute. So as we talk about hope this Sunday before Christmas, the question I bring to you is, what's in your box? What's in your box? Again, this is whether you're a believer or not believer, it matters what's in your box. What's in your box? What is the driving force in your life? What is the most important thing in your life? What's in your box? Anybody remember doing, you can put those away for a moment. Anybody remember doing uh, connect the dots? Do they even have those anymore? You know, where you go from dot to dot. When, when you start out looking, all you see is dots, something like this. Anybody, can anybody tell me what that is? Anybody. If you are, I want to hire you as a prophet. If you can tell. And so what the idea is, hey, let me connect the dots. And the more dots I connect, it becomes clearer what the picture is. And here's what that is. Suddenly, all those seemingly random dots now make sense. All those dots, all those things that seem so random, wouldn't it be nice if that's the way life worked? Are you with me? Uh, this is where you and I say, well, oh, oh, I'm right here. Oh, there's dot two. Let me, let me get to dot two. And this is where I'm at in life. Uh, it, it seems random. Oh, there's that. And then wouldn't it be nice to be able to look back after five years? Of, and oh, it makes perfect sense now. How many have some things in your life that make no sense at all, though? It'd be nice if it all makes sense to us. Because that's the way we're wired. I mean, don't we all have this thing inside of us this wants life to make sense? Uh, uh, make sense is uh, even stuff we walk through that's bad. We still want it to make sense, right? We still want it to, to be for some. Again, it's not a Christian thing, a non-Christian thing, believer, atheist. This is a human nature thing. We want life to make sense. In fact, former Czech president, Havel, he, he did uh, some interviews uh, uh, with, with a Czech journalist, and, which would later be published in a book called Disturbing the Peace. Here's what this non-religious former president said about hope. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. It, hope, is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. What this non-believer is saying, hey, however things turn out, good, bad, I just want it to make sense. 
And here, if you're taking notes, here's your first feeling. Deep down, whether it's good or bad, we just want life to make sense. We want there to be a purpose that this person got sick, that this person died, that I lost this job. We want it to make sense. You, you ever ha- said this or had somebody say this to you? Uh, well, I lost my job. And somebody said, oh, it must mean there's something better out there for you. I tell you what it means to me. It means I can't make a payment. Or what about this? Everything happens for a reason. Come on, we're guilty of saying it. You know, I, I don't understand it now, but I just believe there's no thing, such thing as coincidence. Uh, what about to the, to the uh, 30 plus single person? We'll say things, you just haven't met the right person yet. Then when they do meet the, someone and it falls apart, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. <laughs> Come on. Things aren't going good. We'll say, oh, it, it'll all work out. Why, why do we say those things? Because deep down, we want it to make sense. We want the dots to connect together. But what happens when something happens? What happens when life hits you out of nowhere and what you had, had planned is not happening in your life? I'll say this. Nobody... Nobody ever gets married with this being their long-term. Long-term goal, I plan on getting married, having a couple of kids. In a few years, we're going to hate each other. And, and then uh, we'll, we'll use our kids to negotiate who goes where. And that's my long-term goal for marriage. Nobody sets that out, sets that out with that as a long-term goal. What about job? Nobody goes into, in, into a job planning on losing it. Or getting laid off right before Christmas. What do you do with that? No one goes to the doctor because they're hurting and get a prescription for pain medication with a long-term plan of 20, 25 years later down the road trying to kick this addiction that started 20 years ago that has caused them to lose everything. No one plans on that. No one plans for the excitement of announcing, hey, we, we've got a baby on the way. Then months in losing the baby. What, what do you do with those things? Well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. And, you know, in, in the church I grew up in, and most of you, if you're a Christian, don't you dare... Don't you dare express anger or frustration or don't you dare question God. That's the way I was taught. I mean, we say God knows everything, so we feel like if we keep them in our mind, uh, spoiler alert, God knows what you're thinking. Uh, Even uh, as pastors, as ministers, I've said stuff like, hey, God never wastes a hurt. And I absolutely believe that. But a lot of times the intent behind that is trying to give them hope. Hey, there's a reason behind this. Let's make sense of it. We'll battle a sickness or a disease or someone we know will go through it. And, and, and we want that to have purpose, right? We don't want their sickness to not have any meaning. I mean... 
You don't just go, you, you don't, unless you're just a jerk, you don't go up and say, hey, I guess that's life, stuff happens. And if that person's in your life, you should lose that friend now. But what we'll do is we'll start digging around in our purpose pile. What's the purpose behind it? Why did this happen? I know this can't be random. I know there's got to be a reason behind this. And we'll dig around in that pile looking for a purpose, looking for a reason, and trying to connect the dots because we want life to make sense. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Uh, for those of you that have been here for the first two weeks of our series and you've been wondering, is this guy ever going to read a scripture connected to the Christmas story? Today's your day. Luke chapter 1. Oh, thank you, man. Hey, guys, listen. If, if you don't know uh, any other reason that you need to give in the offering, it's so our youth pastors can afford some pants. <laughs> those have got holes all in them. Just... Hey, I want to read the first four verses, and then we're going to jump down to verse 26, uh, where the Christmas story begins. Luke, starting, one, starting with verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were, what? Our witnesses and servants of the word, verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. What's Luke doing right here? He said, hey, I want you to be aware. This is not folklore. This is not made up. This is not once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. I've investigated. There are or eyewitnesses, this is the real deal. He's laying it out there. Verse, now let's jump down to verse 26. This is where the Christmas story begins. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledge to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Up to this point, we know very little about Mary. We know she's a teenage girl. She's uh, probably planning her wedding, trying to get things ready. She's going to be marrying a guy named Joseph. Uh, this marriage, she's not an influencer. She's not a YouTuber. She's not a Snapchatter. She's just a normal, regular girl from a nobody town. That's all we know about Mary right now. So let's continue. Verse 28. The angel went to her and said, notice what the angel said to this teenage girl. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Uh, I think saying Mary was troubled is an understatement. I mean, I, I'm, I, I've recently uh, turned 50, uh, more recently 54. Um, And even at this age, if an angel shows up to me, tell him, I, I, I'm just telling you, I'm not one of those things that guys that say, oh, send me an angel. No, because every account of an angel showing up, the first, do not fear. Why? But anyway, let's, let's move on. So I think it's an understatement. Verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid. I told you. Uh, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
And he will what? He will what? Reign over Jacob's descendants. How long? Forever. And then it says his kingdom will never end. The reason I wanted you to say that is because I want to give you a little backstory. Israel hadn't had its own kingdom in over 500 years, around 500 years. In fact, they were in the tail end of a period that theologians call 400 years of silence. For 400 years, not a prophet, not a person, no one, no priest, nobody had heard a single word from God. God had gone silent. And during that time, during those years, during the silence, the Babylonian Empire rose up. They were very dominant, and everyone began to think the Babylonian Empire will reign forever. The kingdom will never end. Well, along came the Persian Empire. Again, the Persian, hey, the Persian's will empire will be forever. And it lasted a very long time. But then Alexander the Great comes on the scene. And the people started thinking, Greece, that kingdom will never end. Well, eventually Rome comes on. And again, they begin to think, Rome, the kingdom of Rome will never end. And here's what I want you to understand. During those 400 years of silence, people were born and people died thinking the Babylonian Empire would never end. The Persian Empire will never end. The, the, the uh, Greece Empire will never end. The Roman Empire will never be end. And then, and then you've got this angel showing up and telling young Mary, your, your son's kingdom will never end. And you can look at all those different kingdoms and empires that came and went. You can look at all the details and history of the horrific thing that God's children went through, through there. But know this, even when life seems random, God's hand is at work. Even when life seems to not make sense, it seems random God's hand is at work. And while none of this made sense to Mary, Joseph, or others in their life, that doesn't negate the fact that God's hand was at work through all this. The angel told this teenage girl, you're going to give birth to a son. His kingdom will never end. I wonder how many times she had heard that growing up. Why would she believe it this time? Because she says in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? In other words, hey, I, I've not had sex with anybody. I, I've been keeping myself for, for my husband, Joseph. So, so how, how, how's this going to be? And I think that's a reasonable question, right? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will over, overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Doesn't that sound amazing? I mean, isn't it a beautiful story? But look at it from Mary's point of view. This teenage girl. All of a sudden, her normal life gets turned upside down. Planning a wedding. She, she's kept herself pure. And all of a sudden, uh, this angel shows up and says, hey, you're, you're going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. His kingdom will never end. If I'm Mary, 
I'd be like, uh, that's great. Um, would you mind showing up to my mom and dad and telling them this too? Because me going to say, mom and dad are pregnant, but hey, Holy Spirit did it. Come on. I mean, I, I would be like a little freak, freak, freaked out right now. I'd be like, what about Joseph? He's anticipating the marriage to this young girl named Mary, and then she comes to him and says, hey, Mary, uh, hey, Joseph, I, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. Holy Spirit did it. And when you look at the life, Je Joseph wrestles with this. He, he wrestles with the question, is this woman, has she lost her mind? Or, you know, uh, has she been unfaithful to me? Or, or is this really God? Did he really do this? And he loves her so much, he doesn't want to embarrass her. He doesn't want to, because he could have very well had her stoned to death. But he doesn't. So Joseph says, I'm going to send her away to have this baby, let her go on with her life. But then an angel shows up and tells Joseph pretty much the same thing he told Mary. And Joseph is like, okay. And he accepts this call from God. Then it seems like, anybody ever been where a season of just junk hit your life? You were, I think uh, Stacy called this a few weeks ago, and I'm sorry if this offends you. He said, I was in a season of suck. Amen. Where everything just seemed to be going wrong. You ever, ever been there? Well, well, think about this. They, she finds out, I'm, I'm planning a marriage. Oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, great. It's got, oh, okay. I got to tell my husband. I got to tell my mom and dad. I got to tell that. Well, then it seems like it just keeps piling up because now she's deep into the pregnancy and they announce there's a sense that's going to be taking place. Everybody has to go back to the city they were born. Well, that means Mary and Joseph have to go back to Bethlehem, which is 120 miles away. To us, hey, two-hour drive hour drive if you're being uh, but two hour drive but they didn't have vehicles we're talking an eight to nine month pregnant woman on the back of a donkey for 120 miles i rode five miles with my wife about to have birth i thought i was going to lose my mind I cannot imagine a hundred twenty. If I'm married, can I be a, Here's what I'm thinking. Is this what Holly Favor looks like? Place your favor somewhere else, God. I mean, honestly, is this what it looks like? Having to convince my parents that I haven't lost my mind? Having to convince my future husband that I didn't cheat on him? And now I'm on the back of a donkey, eight to nine months pregnant. And then she's got to be thinking, listen, let's just get to Bethlehem so I can relax. They get to the room, and y'all know the story. No room. No rooms. No rooms. Mary's got to be thinking, hey, angel, where are you at now? I mean, at least all the chaos that I've suffered over the past eight to nine, the least you could do is get, have a room be open for us when we get here. And if you're Mary, Joseph, one of the parents involved in all this, you, you've got to be asking, why would God allow this to happen? 
Then it gets even more complicated. Baby Jesus is born. And they get word that Herod has lost his mind again and is on the hunt for baby Jesus. Then there's this horrible part of the Christmas story that we don't like to talk about because it's ugly. Because Mary gets warned and her and Joseph flee while Herod issues that all his soldiers go to door to door in the city and kill every male child under the age of two years old. And Mary's got to be thinking, God, you warned me. And I'm thankful for my baby boy. But I hear the cries of mothers and fathers through the land. And don't just think they settle for baby boys. They want to make sure all of them were dead. Don't think there were some, weren't some girls in the mix. They were just killing any, any baby two years old and under. I mean, you've got to be thinking, what is the purpose of this? Help me connect the dots, God. Because this doesn't make sense to me. And Mary and Joseph, they flee for their lives, hearing about the destruction and hearing the devastation going on in the city. And there was a few years of calmness. And years go by. Mary watches her son grow up into this teenager, then into a young man. Then Mary, that is highly favored by God, experiences one of the most unimaginable things any parent could ever experience. She sees her son beaten within an inch of his life. She hears the cat of nine tails rip through his flesh. She sees the results of the beating. She can smell. She can see the blood. She can hear the chance of people that Jesus, her son, poured his life into now yelling, crucify him. Then she sees them mockingly take a crown of thorns and place it upon her son's head and watches him die a criminal's death. And while we romanticize this because we know how, to, how it ends, think about Mary, highly favored of God, Mary. The Lord is with you, Mary. Your son's kingdom will never end. How do you think this made her feel? In that moment, it had to seem just like another random act of Roman violence with absolutely no purpose. Even those, those that were closest to Jesus had the thoughts, God has abandoned him and has forgotten about us. But here's the thing, what appeared, what looked on as if God had lost control, it was actually the very center of God's activity taking place. And here's what you need to understand. The voice inside of us longing for purpose, longing that wants life to have meaning, that is the fingerprint of God in all of us. 
when we think life is chaotic, when we think life is not making sense, and we long for it, that is the thing, that is put in there by, by God. And is that thing in, in us that really does want life to make sense, that doesn't want our lives to, to account for nothing, but wants them to have purpose? That is God, the fingerprint of God in us. And Christmas is a reminder that even when all seems lost, when things seem chaotic, God has not lost control. His hand is still at work. Even when it seems like life or things are unredeemable. I'm in an unredeemable marriage or there's a divorce that's unredeemable. I've had a loss that's unredeemable. An addiction that has cost me everything unredeemable or the loneliness that seems unredeemable. When those things at Christmas, we are reminded of this, of what Matthew said in Matthew 1, 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us in the chaos. God with us when it seems like life is falling apart. God is with us. Even when life seems unredeemable. I honestly don't believe that Mary even comprehended what her life was about to look like when the angel showed up and said, hey, highly favored. I believe she really comprehended what it was going to look like. A teenage girl being pregnant in a small town. Some of y'all know that. People talking. They don't care about the truth. They care about making up stories more than anything. She didn't know about the 120-mile donkey ride. She didn't know that her baby was going to be born. See, we, we have this manger scene. Well, what it was was a cave where they kept livestock. And where livestock is, livestock do what livestock do. It was a stinky, smelly cave. Don't, don't, don't think it was anything else. She didn't know that. She didn't know about the slaughter of innocent children that would take place because of her son. She didn't know that, that, that one day she would watch her son be taken away and beaten mercilessly. She didn't know the one that one day he'd arise from the dead. She didn't know that 2,000 years later we would gather once a week just to celebrate him and her son's name. She didn't know that when people heard her son's name, here's what they would think, the son of God. She had no clue about those things. Yet at the end of her conversation with the angel, here's what she said in Luke 138. I belong to the Lord. Body and soul. Let it happen as you say. How much faith did that take for a teenage girl? Everything you said. I don't know what this is really going to cost me, but hey, hey, let it be. I grew up hearing, um, I grew up in church, so I grew up hearing people say things like, perfect faith is faith that moves God. Anybody hear that? The older I get, the more I'm learning this. And it's a feeling. Perfect faith is the faith that moves us to trust God when it doesn't seem like he's moving at all. That's perfect faith. Perfect faith is what moves us to trust God when life doesn't make sense. When the dots aren't connecting. 
when it seems like randomness is all around us. That's perfect faith, to trust God when it doesn't seem to fit. Here's what perfect faith looks like, something like this. Well, we met just like I'd planned. We got engaged just like I planned. We had babies just like I planned. I landed that job just like I planned. But then life happened. And things I didn't plan on started happening. I lost my job. I went through a divorce. This happened to one of my kids. This happened to my health. I found myself neck deep in addiction. Things that I never planned on happening happened. But I'm going to trust God anyway. Even when my life isn't going according to plan, I'm going to trust God anyway. If I can get Bob or Bubba to come on up. What enabled Mary to say those words, let it happen as you say? What, what enabled Joseph Say, okay, I'll, I'll play the part of this father, a father to this child that's not mine. What about guys like Paul? Paul who said he makes all things work out for the good. And he went through a lot of stuff. What made them say those things and hang on? It was all about what was in their box. Jesus was the driving force of their life. Jesus was the most important thing in their life. And when they knew what was in the box, they said, you open that up, it's just got filling. That's the way we are. Then we begin to place stuff in the box. What's in your box? Because here's what I know. If you haven't made the decision of what's in your box, a tragedy will reveal what's in your box. Life hits you, it'll show what's in your box. Getting served divorce papers, It'll show what's in your box. Getting that doctor's report that you weren't planning, it'll show what's in your box. Being one of those 350 people that lost their job a week before Christmas, it'll show you what's in your box. I'm going to close with this. In 1961, a guy named Yuri Gagarin was the first human being to successfully travel into space. Russian guy. The Russians had won the initial part of the space race and they sent a cosmonaut, uh, Yuri, in, into orbit around a watching world. Afterward, an article in the Russia Premier reported that when Gagarin went into space, he discovered this. There was no God there. C.S. Lewis read this. C.S. Lewis wrote an article called The Seeing Eye. Lewis said, 
If there is a God who really did create all of us, we couldn't discover him by going into outer space. That kind of logic, Lewis says, is nonsense. Obviously, if God does exist, God wouldn't relate to human beings the way a person on the second floor would relate to someone on the first floor. Instead, God would relate to us, I love this, the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. If Hamlet wanted to meet Shakespeare, he couldn't just travel somewhere in his little Hamlet world because Shakespeare was the creator of that world and by definition was outside of Hamlet's world. Lewis says this, if Hamlet were ever to meet Shakespeare, it would only be if Shakespeare as the author chose to write himself into the story. Here's how it ends. Lewis said this, to some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely they'll find him in space. But send a saint up in a spaceship, he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. Here's what Lewis is saying. God created all things, if God holds all things together, then you can't just find God in a telescope. God has to find you. God has to choose you. Which is what Christmas is really about. God writing himself into our story. God looking down Seeing the brokenness of our lives. Seeing everything that would take place. And he's like, I've got to write myself into their story. That's the only way they can meet me. That's the only way they can come to know who I am. I've got to write myself into their story. This broken world we live in. This is the world that God chose to be born into on purpose do you get that God chose to be born into poverty God chose to be born on the run on purpose maybe you're one of those people that that God chose last on when they were picking teams for ball and then somebody just looked up well I guess you're the only one that's left come on but get this God chose you right off the bat. Not on how good you were. Not on how talented you were. Not if you could do this or do that. God chose you because he loves you. Maybe you're in a place right now that you aren't expecting. Maybe you're in a place in life that you'd never hoped for. The loss of a job. Tension in your marriage. Health problems. Maybe it just seems like life is falling apart. And maybe you're looking at your life wondering, what do I do with this? Where do the dots connect to this? It all depends. What's in your box? Stand with me. Go ahead and take that box out as you stand.
The reason that box is empty, see, you're, is because you get to decide what goes in the box. And here's the funny thing about this little box. I could put some dime store trinket in here. Or I could buy my wife some expensive piece of jewelry and put it in there. Looking at the box, you'd never know until you open it up. What's in your box? Job, career? What's in it? What's the driving force of your life? What's the most important thing in your life? A relationship? I've given this advice to more people and very few ever take it. Some of you feel like a relationship is what gives you your worth. And that's why you jump from one relationship to another, one to another. And if you're honest, a relationship is in this box. And the best thing you could do is go a year of you just seeking Jesus. What's in the box? Money? Is that the driving force? Sex? Is that what drives you? A hobby? Is that what is that the most important thing in your life? Is it a a hit? A drink? driving force of your life what is the driving force of your life because what you walk this box whatever you walk out of here it'll only have in it what you put in it your life is the box God has given you what's in it heads bowed eyes closed maybe you're here you know without a doubt that Jesus, if you're being honest, Jesus is not in my box. He is not the driving force of my life. He is not the centerpiece of my life. He is, that's, he, by a long shot, he's not it. But today, I want to clear it out and make Jesus the driving force of my life. Heads bowed. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Yeah, yeah, I want, I want to embarrass you. Yeah, yeah, where you at? There's more I see in the back, absolutely. Yes, ma'am, yeah. Wow, praise God. You put your hands down. What about you as a follower of Jesus? You know you love Jesus, but if you're being honest, he's not the driving force of your life. But today you want to surrender it all to him. You, you know, you know what some of you put in this box? This just hit me. Fear. Fear. I'm afraid of what might happen. I'm afraid of this, this variant that's going around. I'm afraid all these noise. I'm a fear. God wants it out of the box. 
Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but I'm telling you, you know God is not the driving force of your life. But today you want to make him that. If that's you, raise your hand. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to pray with you. Everybody just pray this prayer with me. Everybody in the church pray it. So we'll know, they'll know they're not alone. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to put both those prayers into one. Dear Father, thank you for Christmas for coming to my rescue even when I didn't know I needed rescue thank you for writing yourself into my story and right now I empty this box of fear of selfishness of sin of my way and inside it I place you. You are the driving force. You will be the most important thing in my life. Remind me daily of this decision. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen.